Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. growing antagonism against Christianity in our culture today. Uh, Christians are sometimes portrayed as a threat to public welfare. Um, In extreme cases, Christians are viewed as outdated, uh, self-righteous bigots. Biblical truth is is labeled as hate speech. Uh, Just yesterday, actually, I happened to see an article where a preacher thankfully had his charges dropped for offending and upsetting some, some of the public bystanders uh, with the truth. Um, it was a couple that was living an alternative lifestyle, and he called sin, sin. And guess what? He had charges against him. He had to go to court over it. Um, how, do we, how do we respond you know, to these false portrayals? Uh, and what should we be doing with these sort of accusations that, that we're facing today? I mean, how do we live in a culture like this? This, is, this? this is a new culture. We're in a different world. We're in a different country. This isn't the country that we grew up in, right? It's not the same culture. And uh, we're learning a lot about how to live as Christians in a hostile culture. So that's... Where we're going to go with the discussion this morning as we pick up our study in Acts chapter 24. Uh, we haven't talked about this a whole lot yet, but uh, one of the main purposes uh, of the book of Acts is to, uh, at least back in its day, Luke wrote the book of Acts partly to, with the purpose of, defending Christianity against the charge that it was a threat to the Roman Empire, that it was a a threat to social order. And uh, that purpose is clearly still relevant today. And uh, I'll remind us as we come to chapter 24 that last time in the book of Acts, Paul was arrested on false charges, that he had brought a Gentile, uh, a non-Jew, into the temple beyond what they called the Soreg. I'm going to get my clicker here. Um, I don't know how I always forget this thing. My kids end up playing with it, but then I have to leave it there in the pew. But um, they had this wall in the temple complex called the Soreg. I know I've got a picture of it around here somewhere. And uh, basically, you couldn't, you just went through my whole sermon. I thought I had a picture of it. That is, that right there, the chaos, what's going on, leaving my clicker, not having my picture, that describes my whole week this week. So, man. It's been a tough one. I had a lot of complications for some reason. Um, but they had a wall called the Soreg. It was about four and a half feet tall in the temple complex where uh, Gentiles could not cross. And to bring a Gentile across that wall was basically, uh, you, you were asking, it was, it, was so, it was suicide basically. They could kill you for bringing a Gentile into this area where only Jewish 
people could go. And so that was what was blurted out in the temple complex. Paul has brought a Gentile named Trophimus into uh, the temple uh, beyond the Soreg. And uh, he ends up being arrested uh, while they're trying to stone him to death for this false charge. And then he, last week we saw that he ends up before the commander, Claudius Lysias, and a council called the Jerusalem Council, the, the Sanhedrin. And uh, this, this trial that we looked at last week, which was very religious in nature, it basically just ended in a stalemate. And uh, Paul was sitting in jail for a while. Jesus, Jesus told him, look, he encouraged him. He says, look, you're, you did well. You testified about me. And you're going to go to Rome. And uh, then uh, a plot was formed against Paul. Uh, these, the, the Jewish leaders and assassins, basically, the zealots, tried to kill Paul. And uh, Claudius found out about it through Paul's nephew. And he, Paul was transferred uh, to a place called Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima. On the coast, this is where the, the Roman uh, government seat was. The, and uh, the governor, Felix, he's now before going to be before Felix, Governor Felix today, uh, out in Caesarea Maritima. And this is where he spends two years, uh, basically, in protective custody. But let's go ahead and read verse 24 here. Um, After five days, the high priest... Uh, verses 1 through 9. Now after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus. And they brought charges against Paul to the governor. And after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began accusing him, saying to the governor, Since we have attained great peace through you, and since reforms are being carried out for this nation by your foresight, We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. You can just picture them bowing down right before Felix. Oh, the great governor. But that I might not weary you further, I beg you to grant us a brief hearing by your kindness. For we have found this man a public menace, a pest, my translation says, and one who stirs up dissensions among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, so indeed we arrested him. By interrogating him yourself concerning all these matters, you'll be able to ascertain the things of which we are accusing him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So first thing we see in our outline is the accusation before Felix, the accusation made about Paul. Um, well, the last trial, like I said, it was very religious in nature. This, this trial is going to be civil in nature. Civil, it's a Roman civil trial that deals with Paul as a Roman citizen. What kind of citizen is this, you know, uh, as a Roman? And the response, therefore, is going to be very different. Uh, The charges and the responses are going to be very different. The Jewish leaders, um, eager to end Paul's life and Paul's ministry, appoint this guy named Tertullus as their their lawyer, their attorney. And Tertullus, uh, he appears to be a Hellenistic Jew. He has a Greek name, probably speaks Greek. But he appears to have a Jewish background, or at least a a Jewish 
uh, he is a Jew, and it just seems evident by the way that he identifies with the council in their arrest of Paul. In verse 6, he talks about how we seized him, we arrested him. So he kind of puts himself on the same uh, Jewish uh, council. But um, it's apparent that the council is relying on this man's knowledge of the complexities of the Roman law. Like he knows the law, he knows the Roman court system, and he's also very skilled at rhetoric, you know, he's very good at, at talking, so he can skillfully defend the council. And uh, in accordance with standard procedure, the trial begins with a prosecution, which included typical flattery, as we read, right, and then followed by some charges. And it's been said, you know, if you want to know who your worst enemies are, just look for whoever flatters you. You know, right? Uh, Tacitus, he's a Romanist, Roman guy. Uh, he, said, he said, flatterers are the worst of enemies. Uh, Solomon in Proverbs said, a flattering mouth works ruin. You know, as Christians, we want to we, we wanna compliment people. We want to encourage them. We want to we show respect, you know, especially for, you know, folks in authority and that sort of thing, judges, whatever. But, but don't be a flatterer, you know? <laughs> Flattery is ugly. As soon as someone flatters you, you just know they have something up their sleeve, right? They're trying to manipulate you, whatever it is. First uh, Thessalonians 2, 1 through 6, Paul said he avoided flattering speech in his defense of the gospel. But not Tertullus. Tertullus, he, he flatters Felix by talking about just how you know, peaceful everything is under Felix and how thankful they are for him and his reforms when everybody knows you know, the Jews can't stand this guy. I mean, if anyone's there chewing on something, right, they're going to choke because this is just, you know, this is just atrocious to them, what he's saying. Uh, but it's all part of the political game. It's all part of the games. And so uh, as you read through Tortullus's accusation, it's helpful to remember just the, the div- division and the tension between the Jews and the Romans. Um, there is right now fomenting in in Israel, at this time, a rebellion and resistance organized by, uh, by various Jews and the Jewish zealots, they call them. They were the, the revolutionaries against Rome. And uh, all of this is fomenting in the background. Zealots are, are no doubt, I think, at this time, reading through the prophet Daniel. Remember, Daniel talked about these four Gentile kingdoms and Rome was going to be the last kingdom. And after that, the Messiah was going to come. Well, I think they're reading Daniel's prophecies thinking, Rome's here, Rome's got to go in order for the Messiah's kingdom to come. And so they're thinking, I think, through their rebellion and and trying to overthrow Rome, that they're actually going to move the hand of God and usher in this uh, Old Testament messianic kingdom. But while Felix had put down several threats and several revolts, Kind of like that of the Egyptian prophet we read a couple of chapters ago. Remember when Claudius thought Paul was this you know, false Egyptian prophet that rallied his own revolt and Rome crushed them on the Mount of Olives. But um, uh, while Felix did put down several revolts, his rule was not peaceful. In fact, I would say that the entire Pax Romana, you know, that 200 years of Roman peace was not very peaceful. <laughs> I mean, it was only peaceful in the sense that they had a sword to your throat. You know, type of peace, like do this or else type of peace. Um, but history reveals Felix was just that kind of guy. He's a heavy-handed ruler. 
He was violent. He's greedy. He's overreactive, right? If there's, if there's an uprising, he actually, he, this is what got him kicked out of office and moved back to Rome is there was an uprising in Caesarea from some Jews, and he crushed it so bad that he had to leave. Like, it was just overreactive. And uh, he was just causing more and more tension between the Jews and Romans than any other governor, they say. Uh, this eventually fomented into what we know as the Roman-Jewish wars, the Jewish revolts, uh, the wars of the Jews, you know, that Flavius Josephus writes about. This takes place about 10 years later. Remember, that's only 10 years down the road. Uh, the Jewish wars uh, from uh, 80, 66 AD to 73. And, and what happened in AD 70? You remember? The temple was de- completely destroyed. Right? The book of Hebrews comes out about then, that time and it says, get out of the temple. Right? Get out of the temple. You don't need it. And uh, that temple's destroyed and Israel ceases to be a nation until 1948. Right? So when you understand the, the incredible uh, tension, political, cultural tension building in the background, it helps you understand uh, the severity of the three charges that Tertullus is bringing against Paul. And the first charge is that of treason. Treason. I mean, he's a revolutionary. Tertullus calls him a pest. And and that seems a little strange to us, but Felix would have understood Paul to be a revolutionary pest who is infecting people with his plague. Right? He's hiring more revolutionaries, basically. In other words, Paul is a threat to the empire. He's harmful society. He has to go. And this is basically... You know, a similar charge that Paul's faced before over in Thessalonica, they called him an agitator. Remember that? Paul was an agitator, a disruptor of civil peace. Uh, Similar charges were brought against Jesus. Same thing. Uh, Christians today. Uh, But Tertullus brings this charge because if there's one thing that Roman emperors wanted most and one thing that Roman governors under the emperor had to um, fulfill, had to maintain, it was, it was peace, right? If a city was in chaos, it meant trouble for the governor. And so they couldn't put up with any sort of insurrections or riots or chaos. It was a capital crime, especially if you're the one guilty of starting it and, and seeing it through. And so the second charge is that of religious heresy, Heresy. Tertullus claims he's the ringleader of a sect, right? The Greek word heresies, where we get our word heresy from. But in referring to Christianity as a sect, you know, like a, a schism, he's, he's doing two things that I think are noteworthy. And one of them is that if Christianity is a new sect, a new religion, it's illegal because Rome had to approve of new religions, and this wasn't approved officially. And then secondly, the concept of a sect just leaves a bad taste in your mouth, doesn't it? Right? A sect, a, a, a sect, even, even, if they're, even if they're faithful to God, right? A, a group of dissenters are faithful to God, they're still usually viewed as this divisive body, a divisive group of people that are heretical in nature and thus they're disruptive to society. And so uh, this poor taste uh, is amplified, the poor taste of what a sect is, is amplified by Tertullus's use of the terms ringleader and Nazarene. What do you think of when you think of a ringleader? Think of a mob, right? 
Uh, I mean, I'm thinking, this guy's a, a ringleader of a, his own group of zealots or something. You know, you think of a secret group, uh, a Nazarene. Again, John 1.46 says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. This was a derogatory term, calling them the Nazarenes. This was not a self-designated term by Christians. This is what they were called, the Nazareans. So, uh, essentially, what Tertullus has done is he has done a good job of making Christianity look like a specific, localized problem from Nazareth that needs to be addressed before it continues to spread. Right? It's a plague, and we have to put it out. And Paul, is, as the ringleader, is a good place to start. It's pretty convincing, isn't it? He makes Christianity look really, really ugly and harmful to society. He did a great job. Tertullus's use of labels, pest, Nazarene, ringleader, sect, are all remind me of persecution throughout the centuries. Don't they remind you? I mean, when a government or a people group wants to do away with another people group, what do they do? They start to label them and make them look bad in the eyes of the rest of the public so that it seems reasonable to just do away with them. They devalue their human dignity. This is what Hitler did during World War II. What did he call the Jews? Cockroaches. Right? Stamp them out. Exterminate them. Today, what do they call babies? Instead of calling them unborn children, what do we call them? Fetuses. It's just a technical term to make it easier to kill them, right? We call abortion uh, health care, right? I mean, there's just, this happens all the time. Labels are very powerful weapons and, and, and something to watch out for in a culture that views Christians as a threat. So what you're going to notice, though, is that we don't do the same. Because we understand everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody has, has, it has value and worth and purpose in the eyes of God. You know, they're created in the image of God. And so we treat them as such. Paul will not use labels in his defense. He refuses to return insult for insult. But the third charge is now desecrating the temple. And really, this is the original charge. Remember, this was what was blurted out in the temple. This whole thing began with a lie, a false claim, uh, hoping to get Paul killed right there on the spot and never have to deal with it again. But the claim was that Paul desecrated the temple by bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the temple beyond the partition, the Soreg. But because it was false and because there was no evidence for it, Tertullus would have liked to dismiss this charge altogether, I think. Okay, they didn't have any witnesses there. <laughs> there was no evidence it was false but he has to address it and so here's what he does instead of saying that Paul didn't desecrate the temple it says he softens the charge he says Paul tried to desecrate the temple but we stopped him right he tried so he just in all these charges though here's what Tertullus is doing he's painting Paul as a threat to the Roman Empire and an enemy of the public and he has to be dealt with Okay, second though, let's look at Paul's defense now before Felix. And when the governor, verse 10, had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. 
since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogue, nor in the city itself. Nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse me. But I confess this to you. This is what I'm guilty of. That in accordance with the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before other people always. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to have been bringing charges if they should have anything against me. Or else have these men themselves declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council other than in regard to this one declaration which I shouted while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. Okay, so there's Paul's defense. Paul opens up with uh, respect of the governor and, and some facts, but not flattery. Not flattery. He points out that since Felix has been governor for some time now, he should have a pretty good grasp on the corruption that's going on. He can see right through these guys. And he can, he's seen what has been happening with Christianity as it developed. And he responds to each of these three charges. Um, uh, first charge of treason, uh, Paul says, Look, I wasn't even, even in Jerusalem long enough to start an insurrection. He says, I was only in Jerusalem to worship, not to cause trouble. And besides that, I was only there for 12 days, five of which I was in protective custody. So even if I wanted to, you know, just to think that in five days I could do such a thing in such a short order, it's just ridiculous. It's ludicrous. And instead of causing trouble, he says, he went out of his way not to offend anyone, not to cause a stir. He didn't gather any crowds. He didn't carry on any discussion, which is actually quite strange for Paul. Uh, so, uh, second charge is that of sectarianism, heresy. Uh, Paul explains that while he's a leader of the way, right, that was a self-designated, more favorable term for Christianity than the Nazarenes, uh, it's, not, it's not a sect, it's not a cult. Paul uh, explains this by, uh, by explaining how Christianity is simply the fulfillment of all of the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish hope that, that goes all the way back to Abraham. It's not a new sect. It's actually within the fold of Judaism as an extension or fulfillment of Jewish beliefs Okay, that were already right there in the Law and the Prophets. Right? Paul believes the Law and the Prophets. This council believes the Law and the Prophets. This isn't like this entirely new belief system that just came out of nowhere. This is the fulfillment of what these guys believe, and they just don't believe it. You know? So... Paul is saying, look, if there's one thing I'm guilty of, I can, if I'm going to confess anything, it's just I'm just a faithful Jew who believes the promises of God who've been, that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know, so uh, Paul even says, guys, I'm, he's like, he describes himself as an athlete here. So he says, like, I'm, I'm striving. Did you catch that? I strive. I do my best 
to keep a clear conscience before God and men. A clear conscience. He he strives. He wants to get better and better at at living with a clear conscience. He's pushing himself to be better and better Jew. Better and better follower of Christ. But the third chart, the third, in response to the third charge of temple desecration, uh, which we find in verses 17 through 21, he explains that he did just the opposite. He didn't profane the temple. What did he do? He purified himself so that he didn't profane the temple. He did the exact opposite of what they were claiming. I mean, he even brought these offerings to sacrifice. You know, even though he didn't have to, even though he's not under law, he lived on, as if he was. And even paid for others to be purified. Four other men, I think it was. Three or four other men. And then, second thing he did, rather than increasing the tension between Jew and Gentile, what did Paul do? He brought an offering, a a financial gift, an alms, right? That's what he called it. Uh, To, from the Gentiles, for the Jews, for his Jewish nation, in order to help establish peace between Jew and and Gentiles. So Paul's saying, look, I've been over backwards in pursuit to live at peace with God and men, and then I even tried to foster peace between Jew and Gentile. I mean, surely a Roman governor can't ask for a better citizen than this, right? Isn't this like, man, Felix has to be thinking, this guy is a good egg. This is the kind of guy we want. These are the kind of citizens we're looking for. But in closing, Paul stiffens his defense by noting the absence of his accusers. Remember the Jews from Ephesus who claimed that he brought a Gentile into the temple? Where are they? They're not there. It was serious. Under serious business, under Roman law, not only to make a false charge, but also then to fail to appear, to fail to testify. So you're in trouble. He says, so what, basically, what Paul is saying, look, They're in the wrong and they know it. And the reason you know they're in the wrong is because they aren't here. They didn't show up. They're not here to testify. And then in verse 21, Paul says uh, the accusations against him really aren't political, but theologically driven. They're not politically driven, they're theologically driven. He's on trial, he says, for doctrinal matters. Like the king cares about that, like the governor cares about that, right? Doctrinal matters. You know, the, the doctrine of the resurrection, Right? He'd care less about that. This is, a, this is a non-issue that Felix doesn't want to get involved in. Kind of like Pilate with Jesus, Claudius with Paul. You know, just, I don't, this, this doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, but in short, Paul, this is awesome. Look what Paul has done. Paul has defended not only himself, but here's why I think he's here. Here's why God put him in this situation to defend Christianity. He is defending Christianity before the highest social orders in the last chapters of the book of Acts. It's not an accident that Paul is here. It's, it's awesome. This, this, see, Christianity, he's defending it. He's saying this isn't a mystery religion. This isn't, this isn't dangerous. It wasn't done in a corner. This isn't some anti-government sect. You know, we're not against monarchies and governments and whatever, right? Read Romans 13 if you don't think so. But... He's saying, look, if Rome, this is this this is a this is a good thing. Rome, if, if you're not rejecting these Jews, which are very hostile towards Rome, then you shouldn't reject Christianity. Paul's saying, look, Christianity produces good, productive citizens, doesn't it? Christianity will produce a good, productive citizen. I don't know about you, but I was a complete 
waste <laughs> before Christ. I mean, I was, a, I, was a, I was such a poor citizen, man. I just, my conscience was seared to the traffic laws, you know. I wasn't generous. I was selfish. I was self-destructive. I, you know, I, I, went to the court, I went through the court system several times. Okay. Uh, but I came to Christ. And you know what he does? He softens your conscience. And you, and you actually start to obey the laws and things like that. And you start to care about people. You know, it's the weirdest thing. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, he, he can take you and make you a productive member of society. And, man, it feels really good to be a productive member of society. I enjoy doing funerals and weddings and things like that and, and helping people get free from addictions and things that they're wrestling with, you know? I want to make society a better place, and that should be all of our desires. But um, let's look at Felix's response, or lack thereof, Paul's prolonged witness before Felix <laughs> for two years. But Felix, having quite accurate knowledge about the way, adjourned them, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom, and not to prevent freedom, uh, not to prevent any of his friends from providing for his needs. Uh, now, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and responded, Go away for now. And when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and talk with him. But after two years had passed, uh, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And Felix, uh, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul imprisoned. Okay, so Felix, a habitual procrastinator, this guy. Uh, he's the... Uh, procrastinating procurator, we could call him. That's what he's been dubbed before. Uh, but he puts off making a decision. Why? Political expediency. That's why. He says, just, just, just wait. Right? He doesn't make any decisions. Even though he knows Paul's innocent, he knows Paul should be released. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk more with Lysias, the, you know, the, the Claudius Lysias, the uh, guy from Jerusalem. I'm going to have him come, and we'll talk to him in person. We'll decide your fate from there. But we have no record of Lysias ever coming in the two years that Paul is here, and whether Felix even ever asked Lysias to come or not is questionable based on his character and the motives that we see here um, in verse 27 where he wants to do the Jews a favor. How's he going to do the Jews a favor? Leave Paul in jail, right? But... He needs the Jews. He needs to please the Jews so that he can maintain order in Jerusalem and all around. But also the Jews need to keep flattering him so that they can maintain their smaller positions of power. Okay? And, and their corruption and greed and whatever it benefited them. But he's happy to leave Paul in prison until the Jews basically forget about this whole situation. I think that's what he's hoping. And then in the, in the, in the middle of the night, he's going to sneak Paul away and say, oh no, he's gone. But it just never happens. But even while Paul appears to be a political pawn, Felix's political pawn, Luke is showing us, I think, the sovereign hands of God in this whole thing. That, that Paul is not 
Oh, oh no, Paul's in jail. Oh no, his ministry's coming to an end. It's actually the other way around. Uh, this is not the end of his missionary work. It's not the suspension of his missionary work. It's the continuation of it in a different way and in a way that was, was necessary, right? The defense of Christianity before kings and rulers. Okay, so this is actually not a bad thing. This is an opportunity to present the gospel to the highest social levels, to defend the reasonableness of Christianity, and, and that Paul did this with boldness. He's a bold witness. It's, it's, this is the fulfillment, really, of Jesus' words that his disciples would stand before kings and governors for his name's sake. That's what Luke wrote in chapter 21, and now Luke writes the fulfillment of it. He reveals the fulfillment of that prophecy right here in chapter 24. But this shows us an amazing principle that while a Christian can be chained, while we can be put behind bars, the gospel, the word of God, never can be. And to try to do so is just going to, the gospel is just going to advance in different ways. It's amazing. You can't, you can't stop the gospel from advancing. But after time, uh, Paul stands before Felix uh, and, and not only Felix, but his curious wife, Drusilla. Okay, and this is an interesting, interesting character, Drusilla. She's described as a Jewess. Uh, actually, um, she's part of the Herod dynasty, you know, the Edomites who kind of uh, nominally became Jews. And they were the rulers over the Jews. It's just a nominal facade of Jewishness that these Herods had. So remember, her, gran- her grandfather, get this, her grandfather is Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill baby Jesus. That's her grandfather. Uh, his son, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, killed John the Baptist. And he was the one there for Jesus' trial. And then uh, he was replaced by his brother, and Drusilla's father. So, uh, Herod Antipas, her uncle, Drusilla's father, Herod Agrippa I. It was kind of like, it's a mess trying to figure out all these guys. But Herod Agrippa I, who arrested Peter and killed James earlier in the book of Acts, the one, he, this guy that was eaten by worms, remember that? In Caesarea for failing to give glory to God. That's her dad. So, she has quite a unique history, both with Judaism and with Christianity. And so it's no wonder why she's here. She wants to listen to Paul. And then I think Felix also just wants her expertise. But uh, anyway, history tells us this was a, a very power-hungry individual, this woman. She married a Syrian king. It sounds like it was an arranged marriage to a Syrian king named Azizus or something. And then historian Josephus says that uh, Felix wooed her away from that king and and talked her into marrying him and she became felix's third wife and and josephus says he he caused her to transgress the law of her forefathers through adultery so um you know we've kind of looked at the the character of of both felix and drusilla and you know you you have to think paul is treading on some thin ice here kind of like those ice fishermen i saw the other day Earlier this week, there's guys out on the lake ice fishing already. I thought, man, you guys are crazy. I hope you got the right gear and stuff. But um, that kind of reminds me of Paul. He's on thin ice, uh, very thin ice, when he talks about what? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come because mm, Felix and Drusilla don't have much of any of that, okay? 
Uh, um, it says that Paul actually presents the gospel to them. Uh, he says, um, he talks about, he heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ, and there were three aspects that Paul touched on in his presentation of the gospel. Righteousness, no doubt he's talking about God's perfect righteousness and our need of justification, right, through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ, we receive a righteousness that's not our own because we could never be good enough, so we're imputed with uh, Christ's righteousness to us. Uh, self-control has to do with living out salvation uh, in in righteousness, a righteous living, and then the judgment to come has to do, I think, with why it all matters. Why does it matter? Well, because there's a judgment coming, and as a believer, you're going to have rewards, but uh, as an unbeliever, the consequences are, are hell and judgment. And so, it's, it's interesting how this leaves Felix trembling, right? Who's the, who's the one that should be trembling at this point? It should be Paul the prisoner, He's standing before Felix, and Paul should be trembling when actually Felix is trembling. And so it's just ironic turnaround, right? But um, Felix, right, all men, great and small, even the Felixes of the world, are going to stand before God's throne and give an account, and that frightens him. And it should frighten us, technically, right? The beginning of the wisdom is the fear of God, right? And that that fear of, of eternal punishment, I would hope, would drive us to the grace and love that is in Jesus Christ and the gospel and how he's made a way. But that's not what the, this, this governor does. He procrastinates again. He dismisses Paul. You know, I'll send for you another time. You know, he, he, Felix delayed, and, and while he visited Paul for the next two years, off and on, kind of hoping for a bribe, there is no evidence that Felix ever responded in faith to the gospel. And, and, and the sad commentary is that that's, that, that he's not the first, you know. I mean, people are doing this over and over and over again today. People end up just like him. They hear about sin. They tremble at the idea of God's wrath and hell for their sin, but they never do anything about it. They never actually come to Christ. They never put their faith in Christ. They never live for Christ. I mean, so Felix here uh, is a good picture of what not to do. Don't procrastinate. I mean, if the Spirit of God is convicting you of your sin and your need for a Savior, go to Him in prayer and just confess your sin. Ask Him to save you and give you new life in Christ. Just don't, don't put it off. Don't say, I'll, I'll become a Christian someday. And, you know, become a Christian now because the reality is that the more you hear the gospel, the harder your heart's going to become to it. And you're not even promised tomorrow, so why delay? You're not promised tomorrow. This is why the Bible says over and over, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice speaking to your heart, don't harden your hearts. Because the reality is, your heart's only going to get harder. And again, you're not promised tomorrow. The point is, believe in Christ, believe in Christ now. But, now, in our closing thoughts this morning, and I have a lot of closing thoughts, I'm sorry. I couldn't, I struggled so bad this week to try and make this more concise. I wrestled, man. It was, it was hard. My head was spinning, trying to get my thoughts out. But I want us to just concentrate, okay, on how Paul's defense provides us with an excellent example of how Christians should live in a culture that views Christianity as a threat. How do we do that? Well, look at, look at this, Paul. Well, they called Paul a pest, 
Paul let his life do the talking, didn't he? Essentially. Right? He, he wasn't a pest. He was actually a really good and productive citizen. He was a blessing to society rather than a, rather than a pest. Felix has to be thinking, like I said, this is just the kind of guy we're looking for. This guy's a good citizen. He's a good egg. You ever heard that saying? A good egg? I heard that earlier this week, and I just couldn't get it out of my head. Uh, he's a good egg. Right? What do you think of when you think of a good egg? This, that guy's a likable person. He's a good person. There's nothing wrong with this guy. Right? I kind of like him. You know, they're honest. They have integrity. They're, you know, they're pretty happy folks, you know. Yeah, good people, right? The kind of person you want to have as a neighbor, right? And you think, yeah, that guy's a good egg. It's the kind of guy that you like. But this is Paul, man. He's generous. He has integrity. He's moral. He's sensitive to cultural differences, right? He's not going around causing trouble. He strives. He does his best to live with a clear conscience before God and men. Right? That means if there's an issue between him and God, he deals with it. If there's an issue between him and other men, he deals with it. He doesn't let that stuff fester. And he keeps short accounts. He's a productive member of society. He's a good citizen. He's a good egg. Right? And so that's, that's my point today. <laughs> Just be a good egg. Seriously. There's a lot of Christians out there who aren't good eggs, aren't, aren't there? Right? They're not very likable. People don't like them. They're just a nuisance, man. They're annoying. It's just being honest with you, right? You have to present the gospel in a way that's, that's winsome, you know? I don't think Paul was in there preaching fire and brimstone at this guy, at Felix. Yeah, he talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, but it wasn't fire and brimstone. It, it, you have to, you have to, there's a tone of voice that comes with it, right? Uh, be a good egg when you think of that, right? Uh, that word good. Uh, you know, we, we really, I'm, gonna, I'm processing my thoughts this morning while I'm up here, okay? But when you think of that word good, we use that word so much. We overuse it. It's a very broad word. How are you doing today? Good, right? Why, men, don't tell that to your wives when, when you come home from work and they ask you how you're doing. Don't say, oh, it was good. How's your day? Good. It doesn't mean anything, does it? See, we've kinda, it's kind of like the word love. We've kind of ruined it. But when you think of, of, of God as good, oh, what's that mean? God is good. All of a sudden, you start to think, wow, I better define this word good. If God is good, Good and goodness. Remember, what's, a, what's, a, what's one of the fruit of the Spirit? Goodness. Right? Goodness. I think goodness, if we want to try and define it, and I, you could define it your way, I don't care, but I think I can, we can define it as a God-honoring, benevolent character that is what it is and does what it does for the benefit of others. It's very benevolent. Whatever it touches, it's good. It does good. It sweetens things up, right? The environment you're in, if you're good, you're going you're gonna to sweeten up that environment that you're in. You know what I'm saying? It's a sweetener. It makes things better, and it manifests itself not only in what it does, but what it is, in what it is and what it does. And so uh, if we want to continue to disprove the threat of Christianity, I think there's three things we've got to do to uh, the, that are related to goodness, and this is what it looks like. Okay, this is what it looks like to be a good egg, basically. Number one, be good. 
if you have the goodness in your life, you have the fruit of the spirit of goodness in your life, number one, you're going you're gonna to be good. You're going to be a moral person. Upright, righteous, in a humble fashion, right? Not self-righteous, but upright, righteous. You live with integrity. You tell the truth. You don't lie. You don't steal. You love your wife. You love your children. You love God. You love people. You work hard. You don't cut corners in your work. You war against sin in your life. You're walking with God. You're, you're, you're helping your children to walk with God. You know, you, 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 people need to see good. I, I, you don't usually put a period there, do you? People need to see good. Because this world isn't very good, is it? People need to see goodness in us so that there's hope, you know, a thrill of hope in their life. Titus chapter 2 says that we adorn the gospel, we beautify the word of God, you know, like, like, kind of like a woman, what does she do? She adorns her face in the morning. She beautifies her face. After church, we're going to adorn the halls. You know, we're going to adorn this church. We're going to beautify it. We're going to decorate it with Christmas decorations. Well, again, Titus chapter 2 says that we adorn the truth of God's word and the gospel by the way we live our lives, by our behavior, a defensible behavior. Okay? There's a, there's a direct link between immorality right lack of goodness and misery in this world and it's very evident isn't it the link between immorality and misery but there's also a link between morality between goodness being good and human welfare and flourishing in society the reason we're not flourishing so much anymore in our society is because we're not good it's not moral and so, here's the thing. We're not just good for goodness sake. You know the Christmas song, just be good for goodness sake? And so you can get more presents? No, we're, we want to be good so that we can be a sweetener. So that we can make our communities, our families, our homes, our nation, our world, a better place to live. That means being good, moral people. It's a message you don't hear very much anymore, is it? Whoever we are, wherever we are, we can make things better just by being moral people. We sweeten up the environments that we're in. We're, we're, we're good fathers, mothers, children, employees, bosses, students, teachers, politicians, whatever it is. Wherever a Christian should be, there should be sweetener. Making things better, making things good. Okay? And, and when you do that, it doesn't matter what people say about you. Why? Because your walk and your talk is going to defend you. People are going to, yeah, people slander you, right? Your walk and talk, people are going to say, I don't believe a word that guy's saying. I mean, even if, they, even if someone slanders you, you should have a reputation that says, that the people don't even believe it. You know, like, I really don't believe that, right? Someone said something about uh, uh, my, my, f- my father-in-law once, you know? They put words in his mouth, and they said that he said this, and they threw in some curse words, and I'm like, he didn't say that. And they're like, well, well, like, he did not say that. You need to take that back. And he said, yeah, well, he didn't add those words. And I said, yeah, and he didn't have that attitude either, did he? Right? So you can tell. So he had to really back up and re-represent my father-in-law well. 
you know, because he has a good reputation. And, you know, we, I guess by, by, by goodness, we want to create an opportunity, you know, where people see us differently and it, it presents an opportunity for the gospel. There was a, a one commentator, he said this, in today's world where the moral compass has lost its magnetism, such a life stands in contrast to that of many. This contrast, if lived out in an effective, engaging manner, can be attractive. Right? We adorn the gospel. When people sense the chaos of the alternative lifestyle that a lack of morals produces, no state should fear this. Right? No government fears a moral person. What does Romans 13 say? It's there to, the government's there to, ideally, you know, not in all cases, but ideally they're there to condone good and to punish evil, right? If you're an immoral person, you lie, you steal, you, you murder, you get in trouble, you know? But anyway, let's look at the second one. So we go, be good, now do good. And this is speaking about ethics, right? How we treat other people, do good to others, serve others. Titus says it several times. We should be, remember when we went through that book? I'm basically preaching Titus this morning. Titus says, be zealous for good deeds. Be, be ready for good deeds. Do good deeds. Help others, right? Proverbs 11.10 says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Right? We never want to be, guys, this church that, that lives under a rock or in some dark corner of the city somewhere that never comes out of its corner. Right, we want to be a church that is actively engaged in our community in various ways. We want our mayor. We want our city council. We want our neighbors to say, Shadron and the surrounding villages, Hemingford, Gordon, Rushville, Hot Springs, wherever, Heming Shadron and the surrounding villages are a better place because of Shadron Berean. Bunch of good eggs over there, you know? That means we have to, I think, look for or ask about different ways that we can serve our community. Kind of like 400 sandwiches. You remember that? 400 sandwiches we got to make for firefighters last year. I love that kind of stuff. We should be doing more of that. That is fun. And then... This our care ministry that's getting kicked off. You know, this year we've really started to get into the care ministry and taking care of people that need it, who can't. And, and you know, right there's a picture, a service project where we were reciting uh, someone's garage for them. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Do good. Be zealous for good deeds. And then thirdly, here's the big one where I might lose you, but support what is good. You might hop off my train here in a little bit. Support what is good unabashedly, without shame, but with reason and with composure and with compassion, support what is good, even if the government says it isn't good. You know, you know what I'm saying? You have to, as a good citizen, stand for what is good, even if the world is saying it's not good. You, you, it, might, it might cost some sacrifice on your part, but you to be a good egg, but you are going to stand up for what is good. What made our country great in the past was our good Judeo-Christian values. Do you think our country is going to go anywhere if we don't keep supporting good Judeo-Christian values? That's the only way forward out of this pit we've dug, this awful 
relativistic hole in the ground, this bad movie that we're watching, come to it, you know, just go up and smoke our country, man. It's just awful, isn't it? I'm sorry to be so negative, but you were watching this whole thing just crumble. The only way back is to rebuild the foundation of Judeo-Christian values, and you, you cannot be ashamed of them, of biblical values, biblical living, morality, ethics, marriage, you know, all of that. It's the only way forward out of this mess that we're in. And everyone, even the non-believers and believers, everybody's starting to realize, everybody's starting to wake up now that we've went down this relativistic train that we're on. Everybody's starting to realize, boy, this isn't very good, right? There's a lot of problems that come with sin, right? We are, we're, we're watching it before our eyes. People are waking up, um, to the reality of sin and the, the issues that it's causing, all these, like, you know, these alternative lifestyles and things. But uh, here's the thing. I've had a lot of difficulty expressing my thoughts on this issue because I don't want to come across as legalistic. But ever since the spring of 2020, when all of this started to spiral downhill really fast, I've had it in my mind that as Christians, we need to learn to champion morality and to do it uh, with creativity, right? support morality with creativity and through education. You know what I mean? By helping people understand why biblical living, biblical morality is a good thing and not a threat to their personal well-being. That when God says, be holy for I am holy, he's not, command, he's not, he's not commanding this to make their life boring or to steal their fun. He's good and he, he, when he says that, he wants what's best for you. He actually wants you to live, right? He, he, he wants you to flourish. He wants you to know what it's like to really live because sin shackles you. Sin is unfulfilling. And so I guess in seeing as we champion morality and we show people, uh, you know, the harmful effects of not doing things God's way, people will kind of be drawn to God's way. I hope I'm expressing this okay, but... You know, they, and then thus they're drawn to the gospel. They see, wow, God's ways really do work. What we're doing is not working. You know, I, I just think we've never been in a position like we're in today with such rampant immorality, the alternative lifestyles, the, you know, giving up of pronouns, whatever. Uh, just, again, a lot of people, believers and non-believers, are, gonna, are waking up to the harmful effects that this is having on our society. Many people today, what, what, have looked at marriage as shackling to their freedom. And they've fought against traditional biblical marriage, traditional biblical roles, but abandonment of biblical marriage and abandonment of biblical roles is probably the number one reason for so much poverty and disorder that we're seeing in society today. Right? So we've got to get back to the roots of the problem. The roots of the problem are that we've given up Judeo-Christian values. Biblical living. In his book, We Won't Be Silenced, We Will Not Be Silenced, Erwin Lutzer points to uh, a doctor's work in India. He says that people from the Indian subcontinent get married, stay together, they get an education, and work hard, and so most are not part of the underclass. Now, you don't want to be in poverty. Okay, do things God's way. 
You know, that is basically what he just said. That he continues, the connection between this loosening of morals and the misery of my patients is so obvious that it requires considerable intellectual sophistication and dishonesty to be able to deny it. The connection between loosening of morals and misery in the culture. He says the climate of moral, cultural, and intellectual relativism. You know what relativism? It's the idea that there's no such thing as right and wrong. It's just anything goes. See, this, this, this climate of relativism, a relativism that began as a fashionable plaything for intellectuals, like it was fun for a while, he says it has been successfully communicated to those least able to resist its devastating practical effects. Devastating practical effects on society. So um, you might have to read through some of that again in order to try to track my train of thought here. But um, I'm, I'm a middle and nowhere pastor. I have little influence. And, you know, sometimes I'm glad for that. Especially on today's like today when I can't get a can't get a word out, but um, I'm still thinking through this concept. But at the same time, I would I would challenge us as a church and, and the global church to try to find creative ways to promote or champion morality in a positive tone these days, because we're on a whole new level, and we've got to do something about it. And I've been wrestling for three years. What can we do? And I've seen this done a couple of times. One was one organization. I'm just going to share two organizations I found. Number one was uh, the, the National Fatherhood Initiative. National Fatherhood Initiative is an organization with a positive tone and clear thinking and facts, statistics, showing people the unfortunate effects that a fatherless home has on our society. And in an effort, try to prevent it and then do something about it, you know? And this number two was an organization, an organization called Fight the New Drug. Fight the New Drug. Have you heard of this? Okay, it's, it's dedicated to helping people understand the harmful effects of explicit material on men and women and how they can have victory over it. And they even, you know how, you know how the, 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 the evil always has their slogans? like my body, my choice. I think the church needs to learn from that. We need to champion morality. Here's what Fight the New Drug came up with. Porn kills love. Porn kills love. It's very memorable, isn't it? They're doing a great job and they don't just, they don't just, they don't, they aren't just out there presenting the statistics and showing people all of the harmful effects. They're actually helping people overcome this serious issue that is ruining marriages and families and lives. And so, I think their slogan is absolute genius and we could learn from it. That's all I'm saying. My point, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. That means being good, doing good, supporting what is good, all with a benevolent heart towards others, being a sweetener wherever we go. And in so doing, we create an environment that is inviting and, and winsome to the gospel and where we can engage people with the gospel and advance the gospel. Um, whoever we are, wherever we are, I think we want to create an environment where people wonder, you know, 
I don't know much about those Bereans, but, but they're strange. You know, they're strange in a good way. They're good eggs. They're good eggs, and I want to know what makes them so different. Thank you.